Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to series two of Mad World. Now, the first series had a prince, a chef, a pop star, a mental health nurse, and over half a million downloads on iTunes. And one podcast in particular, yes, the Prince Harry one, had over four million listens. Our second series has a similarly varied cast of characters. And our first guest requires no introduction. Hello, everyone. My name's Bryony Gordon. You're not here to see me. Here is Stephen Fry. I'm sort of starstruck, awestruck, writer, actor, polymath. Don't forget to mention my modesty. <laughs> this is a recording for my Mad World podcast. Don't worry, you can laugh as naturally as you want. We've had some fascinating guests on before, like Prince Harry, but I like to mention that as quickly as possible. <laughs> but you're sort of my hero for many reasons. But we always start the podcast by asking the question, the seemingly simple question, how are you? But we ask it a million times a day, and we sort of go, fine, fine. But how are you really? Well, given licence to answer how I am really, I'm actually pretty good. I was a bit low last week, and I wasn't quite sure why. But then, you know, let's be honest, everyone's low at this time of year. In fact, I believe today is the day most people don't go to work. It's the lowest that that people who are not blessed with bipolar disorder find that they are on a downward cycle after Christmas and the bills are coming in and everything's grotesque and grey and miserable and there's almost nothing to celebrate in the world, it seems. Even if you're Scottish, you've already you've had Burns Night, so there's nothing left for a whole year until Hogmanay. <laughs> and so I was there, but also I was on antibiotics and they make you a bit low. Uh, I had an infection. You don't want the details. Of that, no, I do. Really. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> what kind of infection? No, you really, really really don't want to know what the uh, details of that were. But I'm cheerful at the moment. I am resolute and cheerful and coping with all the various things that life throws at me. But that's not too difficult in many respects. We'll, we'll, I'm sure, come on to this, but I'm constantly aware of how lucky I am compared to all kinds of people with similar mental problems to me because I have so much an easier time than they do in being able to cope with it and being given space and support. Let's imagine that you have the similar, you know, I am diagnosed as having bipolar one. It used to be called manic depression. It means you swing between episodes of mania and uh, exaltation and feelings of grandiosity and the possibility of everything, uh, making projects, planning for the future, believing that you can do anything, looking forward insanely, and swinging between that and its exact polar opposite hence the bipolar space, where there is no future. Everything is so dark that the, the idea of there being a tomorrow, let alone a day after tomorrow, is absolutely impossible to imagine. For most people who suffer from this, it's a, obviously a pretty terrifying thing because they can't tell their friends. They're beginning to live now, thank goodness, in a society where people understand there is such a thing as mental illness and there is such a thing as bipolar disorder and other forms of disorder are more talked about and the government and uh, all kinds of campaigns that I'm sure you've been aware of, possibly felt battered to death about over the past year or so, have been kicked into action and have made a difference. But nonetheless, if you're in a normal kind of workplace, whatever that is, an office, let's say a selling environment, a driving, whatever it is you might do, it's nothing like as easy as it is for me. In show business, you can tell people, 
almost anything about yourself and they go oh, okay I, I get it and plus you're almost expected to have a mind that's a bit weird in order to be in a creative industry so i i never let sight of the fact that i'm extremely fortunate to be able to be absolutely honest about how i am feeling how i can answer that question i can you know if i'm in a film i can go into a film set and say i'm sorry i'm gonna have to take the afternoon off i can't cope i'm without i'm going to burst into tears at any minute and they'll go oh i've got it i'll put an arm around you and they go okay i'll put you in a car you go home now imagine doing that if you work in an insurance office it's much harder it's simply harder i mustn't ever forget that that it's you know i can talk blithely sometimes about mental health uh, because it's much easier for me to come to terms with than it is i suspect for others i've had a history of that because also, I'm not as other girls, and I am gay. And when I first came out in the 1980s, it was infinitely easier for me to do so because I was in this business called show, where you can, again, say, I'm gay. They go, yes, of course you are. Who isn't? <laughs> and there's no issue with it. So I've been very used to being highly privileged, shall we say, and I suppose that's why I go on about it. Part, or at least, if I hope I don't go on about it. But that's why it's never been a problem for me to be honest about things like that because I'm used to being supported in, in my work environment amongst my friends in a way that is atypical of society. But it's much easier for people to talk about their mental health and mental illness now because yes. of you. I mean, I well. look back to when I was growing up, you were the only person, the yeah. only person talking about mental illness. Yeah. And I remember your documentary in 2006, The Secret Life... Life of the Manic Depressive. With, you know, and you interviewed Carrie Fisher, you interviewed all these sort of amazing people. And I do get that there's a sort of assumption that if you are in the creative arts, yeah. you're going to be a bit crazy. For people to hear you talking about it mm. makes a massive difference. Well... If, if that is so, obviously it's, it's terrific to, th to think it, and I don't want to paint myself as any kind of a, a noble figure, but being sensible of how fortunate I have been all my life, it is a genuine privilege to be able to speak for those who haven't been able to speak for themselves. And there is no question that since that film was made in 2006, mental health and the prevalence of mental health disorder in this country, the fact that... It is the biggest single cause of death in young men aged between 20 and 40, bigger than cancer, bigger than car crashes, bigger than any other form. Indeed, it is true in the Western world that suicide is a bigger cause of death than violent death and war and drug overdose combined. It's a massive problem we're facing. People now are beginning to understand this. And there are things about it that I still don't understand. And you'll know, know about this, Brandy, probably better than me, because to me, this was something that didn't exist when I was a child and is now an epidemic. And I wanted to make a film about it, and I still hope perhaps I will. I'll call it shh, because it is unspoken as a shush about it, but also SH, it stands for self-harm. And I talk to schools a lot, and sometimes you know, I've had godchildren being the kind of knobby ass I am who, who are at Eton or Beedales or something and I go there but I also try and talk to schools and you know in the comprehensives in estates in North London for example I've been to and now you might imagine that there is self-harm amongst kids who's who have single parents whose fathers may have abused them or abandoned them um, and maybe drug addicts or their mothers maybe or you know they're surrounded by degradation and kinds of things that we would find horrific and a far cry from from Mayfair here and, and Piccadilly and so you'd think yes I can understand why maybe these kids retreat into some kind of self-harm but you go to Eton College for God's sake and I remember I was talking to the Shelley Society there, which is this kind of left-wing society in Eton. So, yeah, we're really pissed off about the injustice in the world. <laughs> no, fucking hell, actually. It's really bad. There's a lot of injustice, actually. <laughs> Serious problem. And so they're very charming, sweet. I mean, lovely people. Um, and some, one of them asked a question about mental health, and so I spoke about, the, you know, this self-harm thing. And this guy came up and said, yeah, if you want to talk about self-harm, you know, you just talk to some guys here. Because it's like, you know, every house there's you know, at least five or ten people who cut, each, cut themselves. I said, what? I said, yeah. Mm. When I was a boy, the phrase self-harm didn't mean anything. I had never heard of anybody cutting themselves. 
ever. It, it just didn't wasn't a thing I was aware of. Now we can all try and suggest reasons. You know, we can talk about what social media is doing and how it's pressuring and how other things are pressured. I mean, I remember being pressured as a teenager, but clearly it was nothing like the pressures that seem to be on kids now. Wilfred Owen said in that poem Futility, you know, about limbs so dear achieved. Mm. The dear achieve of a body and a child's body is so, such a beautiful thing that they would wish to hurt it and harm it is deeply distressing and it's one of the most urgent things we face is to confront the fact that we have such unhappy children mm. and we can say but look they've got everything they've got iphones they've got this they've got that. clearly we know, we know that can't be enough there is something missing and who is it who's not providing what's missing is it a, is it a huge social thing is it a political thing is it a personal thing how do we address it because it's, it's something that needs to be put right do you think that there is more of a problem with mental illness or do you think we're just talking about it more? Uh, it's very hard to know, Brownie, is the answer to that. I think uh, historically you can look back and see that it has obviously been a problem. I mean, there, there have been extremes of mental distress that have caused the building of enormous asylums in the Victorian age, for example. And the Victorians had to deal with the fact that they recognised that they had a, a large population of people who were, as they would call them, a lunatic or insane or dementia precox and all those different phrases they used for insanity in those days. Uh, but Colney Hatch, have you seen how big that is in, in North London? I mean, some of these asylums are vast. Mm. They're like some great horror film, like Shutter Island times 10, you know. So it's not really new, and we know, you know there are great figures, warriors. Uh, the great K. Redfield Jameson, who's a, a an American. She wrote the, An Unquiet Mind. She's an extraordinary woman, my hero in many ways. She's the professor of uh, psychiatry at uh, Johns Hopkins University, which is the, probably the premier teaching hospital in, in America. But she's also a visiting professor of literature at St Andrews. She writes these wonderful books. She wrote a book called Touched by Fire about mental illness in artists in the past and warriors. You know, we know about Churchill and his black dog, for example. And sometimes it's a bit like, you know, gay people ticking off or Jewish people saying, he's one, he's one, he's one. You, know, you list all the, the heroes who have belong to the same minority grouping as you and say how proud you are because you've got Churchill and Alexander the Great and <laughs> Schubert on your side. You and I know that the one thing you want to say about mental illness is, that, well, the two things you want to say appear to be opposites. There's a tension. The one thing you want to say is how serious a, a mental health disorder can be, that it drags people down from the kind of normal life, as we might say, because, well, let's suppose, and this is often the case for people, that you find your moods change in a way that you can't control. You don't know that this isn't absolutely normal, because they change quite severely you get very very low and you get ashamed of it and you hide from people and then you get very very high and you're everybody's friend and you can be impulsive and exhibitionist and either spend lots of money or be sexually impulsive or things like that um, and it's sort of disturbing because you can't control it but you don't know that it's an illness so you reach out for the two things that society offers which can control your mood and those are drugs and alcohol such an obvious thing. I've gone that path, you've gone down that path. We know yeah. what it's like. You're low, cocaine and speed and other such things, they bring you up, they keep you going. You, you're suddenly, you're not a victim of this, this black mist, this black curtain that descends on you. you it, it pushes the curtain up and you're alive and you're sparky. And if you are, you can also take the alcohol as well. It can, you know, just sort of sedate you a bit sometimes. And of course, the more you take, the more you need, and, and the worse the aftershock is when you're off it, and the more you need it. And, mm. and so, and again, if you're in showbiz or if you're like us, well, people will tell you that you, to go to NA and whatever, and you'll be sorted out. But all kinds of people, they lose it. They lose their families. They lose their money. They lose their jobs. And suddenly they're on the street. And I've been to places like the, the mental health hospitals in Homerton, mm. which are filled with people who had wonderful jobs and wonderful families who lost everything because the jargon is self-medicated they'd reached out for the only medication that they could find which were drugs and alcohol so you want to emphasize how mental health can be serious the medical term for it doctors use is it has a morbidity a high morbidity in other words it shortens your life that having some you know a, a diagnosis like bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder or many other kinds can shorten your life dramatically 
everything from nutrition to systemic health of your body is compromised, not to mention the street life and the violence and the possibility of just rejection and loneliness and all those things, plus suicide, the ultimate, of course, sanction of, of your own life. You want to emphasize that and show people how serious it is, but the other part of you wants to scream, look, it is possible to live with these diseases. It's mm. possible to have these disorders and be a fully creative, happy, connected, loving, friend-filled, fulfilled person, achieving things, doing things, living with it. It's a chronic condition in the proper medical sense of the word, in the way that asthma is chronic. It's not cured. You, you live with it. You find a way to cope with the possibility you might have an asthma attack one day. Out of the blue, you always have your Ventolin on you. Or you're diabetic. It's a chronic condition. You're diabetes 1, you've got to have your insulin, you've got to have a Mars bar in the other pocket in case you go you know, hyperglycemic and, and so on and so forth. You live with it. You can do it and you can be up there with the greatest people, the most productive, happy, successful people. So these two things seem to be the opposite. On the one hand, you want to warn people it can end your life, it's mm. so serious. On the other hand, you want to say it's not a death sentence. Yeah? I find that really moving on a personal level, and I've spoken about this. It's a chronic illness, and I've yeah. had mental illness since I was 12, perhaps earlier, and only recently completed a course of rehab. So I'm nearly six months sober. And the comorbidity of those things and the amount of people that are just lost. We were talking sort of quite a lot earlier about, I mean, you've spoken about drug addiction in the past. Yeah. It really does destroy yeah. people, you know, and I think it's really important to kind of... Yeah. Another thing that even I was shocked by this, when I made the documentary, I interviewed this remarkable fellow who had been a commander in the Royal Navy and in fact had actually been uh, on the crew of the Royal Yacht Britannia when it was still, uh, the Royal Family still travelled by by the Royal Yacht. And he slowly developed kind of late onset bipolar disorder of great extreme. His, his psychotic manic episodes were very, very extreme and he became a deep embarrassment and had to leave the Navy. Uh, and his depressive episodes were very, very bad too. And I, I interviewed him and he told me about when he was in a hospital in uh, Plymouth and the security wasn't very good and he'd escaped and he walked out to stand in front of a, a lorry that was coming that way that crashed into him and he showed me the scars on his legs. He'd had his bones reset goodness knows, 20, 30 times. It was, a, it was a ghastly battlefield to look at his legs. And he said, well, there are two things you understand. One is, yes, I'm fully aware of what a terrible thing I did to the driver of that truck. You know, I should have chosen that way to end myself. And I said, but this legs, the agony. How many, how many times did they re-break the legs? He said, yes. What I want your viewers to understand is that the pain in my legs for the next two years, as they kept breaking them, was as nothing to the pain inside me made me walk in front of that truck and that's the thing people find very hard to understand that it is a real pain inside you when when it's bad it is as bad as any human being can suffer anything and you know it's absurd to compare it to childbirth or kidney stones or anything like that but it's bad enough to make you want to do anything to end it and the children i've spoken to who do self-harm say they do it to stop the pain mm. they cut themselves with a knife to divert the pain they're feeling inside. That's something that's quite hard to understand, but has to be understood, doesn't it? But I do think it has to be understood. You were talking about suicide earlier, and how, you know it's mm. the biggest killer of young men in this country. And I think with suicide, certainly what I understand of it is that often it's not, it's not about wanting to die. It's, it, it's, you said, it's about wanting to sort of replace... Yeah. You've spoken very frankly about attempting mm -hmm. suicide. And I, when I was doing my research for this, I was very surprised to see that as recently as 2012, yes. you've made an attempt. Yeah. It's very interesting. I think when you come out and you tell your story, mm. there's a sort of feeling that there's a narrative. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then you're, you know, you're done and you're cured and you're happy. And, and actually, as you say, it's a chronic condition. It's ongoing. Yeah. Can you talk through that sort of how... Yes, you I, I happened to be filming at the time and I was in Uganda doing doing a documentary it was in Kampala and one night in the hotel I'd been slowly building I could felt this it's very hard to find the language isn't it but it's like this something is sucked out of you and this sort of vacuum fills your head and this darkness and this emptiness and this absolute primal despair and sense of nothingness ahead of you and a sense that there is no purpose in living and all the things that ought to make you live like the knowledge of what news of your your own self-slaughter as hamlet puts it would do to you well, my both my parents are still alive and well and, and so on and how that would destroy them and my sister and the 
now of course my husband but I, I hadn't met him then all those things were nothing because the only thing that I could feel in that strange room in that hotel in Kampala was this absolute need to end things and I had and I had done this for, for several years kept made sure wherever I traveled I traveled with a lot of pills um, Xanaxes and Ambien's and all these nonsensical things that I'd got either on the internet or from drug dealers or from my own doctor and just as a sort of in case yeah I had not consciously done it but I'd always somehow I always had to have far more that I travel with than I would ever need just to be asleep or just to be tranquilized and that particular night I had a bottle of vodka sent up to my room and I poured as many of these pills onto the table and I just started to eat them and swallow them down with vodka and eat them and swallow them down with vodka in the certain knowledge that this would end everything and that I would be carried away on a sort of buzzing nothingness. And indeed, I don't even remember getting into the bed. I, all I remember was being wrestled awake and um, in, in a state of the producer of the program I was making. They had to break into my room. I had, um, fortunately, which is what saved my life, is that I had vomited <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> Poor things had to deal with that. And I was put on a plane and to send to London and there I met this r remarkable man who's my psychiatrist Billy and he told me that there was very little chance I would live another couple of years in the current way that I was but that if I was prepared to submit myself to his care and advice there was a chance that we could start again and I could live if I chose to and he was a fantastically tough Irish guy he just said it would look at me with clear blue eyes and I fell to pieces he just hadn't lied to me and just made it very clear that I was in a terribly dangerous situation. So he cleaned me out, made sure I stopped drinking, made sure I there was no possibility of me doing any drugs or any pills or anything of that kind. And we started talking to each other. And we worked out a series of things to try. <laughs> and over a period of a year and a half, we settled on some medication that seemed to work with me. And I slowly began to be more confident. And I realised that I had, in the words of Renton in um, Trainspotting, I had chosen life. I haven't sensed since that moment that I was likely to slip back. But Billy reminds me that this is who I am and this is always a possibility, that this, I have this illness and it might take over one day. So you do you still take medication? I stopped about a year ago. With, we talked about it and I'd been on lithium, quite high doses of lithium, which is a common uh, medication, as you probably know, it's just an element. So, you know, when a watch is pointless, we'll know all the elements. <laughs> and um, it's lithium salts, uh, for some reason, has been known about since the 1920s or 30s as a very strong, can't take too much or your kidneys explode, but uh, so you have to get, have your blood tested. I think the mixture of finding my husband, Elliot, and various other changes, I know these are things I'm not going to say are cures, but for me, they've helped. I exercise every day, I usually walk 8, 10 miles every day. I recently had this infection, so I only walked seven miles today. Well, you've done some impressive steps on your, your yeah, Apple Watch and, we were talking about earlier. And I eat better, although I'm still tubby. These things seem to help me. And I'm just more aware of how, how dangerous it is, I suppose. And, and, and that's now six years ago, or five and a half years ago. So. Do you have episodes? I still, yes, have mood swings. The beauty of living with someone who, is they see them before I do. It's very common, to, if you live with someone, actually to be more annoyed by the upswing than the downswing. The downswing is fine. You just want to, I crawl off into a bedroom and draw the curtains and, and shiver and moan in the bedroom. But when you have an upswing, you know, I'm just, you know, who knows what one's going to do. I'm going to start reorganising every room in the house and changing things. Take. I met someone when I was doing a documentary. His wife explained to me while he was out of the room. He wants took our car, a wonderful car, he took the engine apart and he was having an episode, a manic episode and every single piece of the engine, the motor of the car, he put it on a cloth and he did an outline with a marker and put its name and its number in the most organized way. He was going to clean each part and he was going to put it back together again. It was going to be shiny. It was going to be amazing. Halfway through, he had a mood swing, kicked it all to pieces and threw it away. <laughs> so that's a kind of symbol of what can happen when your mood changes. When did you first experience it? Well, it's interesting. I don't quite remember, but when I made the documentary, 
I went back to my school. Um, my parents had sent me to a psychiatrist when I was 15 because I had a whole raft of childhood problems, what would now be called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, you know, which is often now prescribed for children, but I couldn't sit still in classroom and I was a pain in the ass for everybody and incredibly bouncy and obnoxious, I'm sure. I also stole a lot of <laughs> all the time. I'd go into shops and steal screwdrivers and things like that and hide them in, a, in my study at school for no particular reason. I didn't want them, but I just stole it. Anyway, I was sent to a psychiatrist who happened to be a conservative health minister. It was a rather peculiar thing. He was called <laughs> Gerard Vaughan. I know, it was very odd. He was one of those people with one of those enormous Mont Blanc pens and wrote in sort of blue-black on a sort of cream paper. And he'd sent his diagnosis of me to my parents and they'd sent a copy of it to my housemaster at school. So when I interviewed him to ask him what I was like as a teenager, and he said, well, you were a monster. And this man, Gerard Vaughan, had written about, you know, concentration, focus, uh, all these things, but he'd put in the corner, bipolar, question mark. And that was not a common word, you know, a common diagnosis in those days. We were talking about early 1970s. So he had suspected that I might be bipolar when I was 14 or 15 or however old I was at that time. I was always different. We all assume that the way we are is how other people are, and they just hide it better, or they, they lie, and that uh, it took a long time for me to realise that I was actually d really different in, in that way. I think we all, when we're teenagers, and a lot of us, for the rest of our lives, have this tension where we want to be accepted by everybody, we want to be a part of the tribe, we want to belong, but another part of us wants to be different and separate. I'm not one of you, I am myself. And it's that tension, wanting to belong, to be a part of the tribe, and to be apart from the tribe, I think that kind of makes us who we are. And, and usually we cope with it. The sort of, the feeling of being different, the feet you were mm. saying, you know, gay, Jewish. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, we were laughing about the fact that I'm a member of so many clubs. I remember this club, I remember the Athenaeum, I remember the Savile, of the Garrick, of the Beefsteak, of the Oxford and Cambridge, Groucho, so house group, blacks. I, can't, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And if you look at it, it's all saying, do I really belong? Am I accepted? I never really felt I was. And so I, whenever someone founds a new club, I have to be a member of it. I have to believe that someone wants to accept me as a member. It's preposterous, but I can't get away from it. And yes, I, I'm a member of a lot of minorities, I suppose. And I'm deeply proud of that. And another part of me wants to be just an ordinary person, except an ordinary English person. But you're a national treasure. Ah, <laughs> stop it. How does it feel? No, but I'm really... How does it feel to be... How do you manage mental health in the limelight? Because there have been a number of times when you've had to leave social media, for example. Yes, and yeah. as far back as 1995, you had an, an episode... Yes, while filming something. I did indeed. That's where it was a suicide attempt as well. And uh, yeah. And back it, then, I imagine it was... I left a West End play I was in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was pretty grim. It's both a wonderful thing because you have people writing to you, uh, showing support for you, people you've never met being incredibly supportive and sweet. But it's also embarrassing that you're having this you know, meltdown in, in front of others and that people know about it. But people are generally speaking, very generous. Your average cabbie or person in the street put an arm on your shoulder and say, you're all right, mate, don't worry, you know, it's okay. The thing is, I am very sensitive. I may appear suave and debonair, I hope I do. Um, but but do. I am deeply, deeply unhappy about negative criticism. I, I learned to use Twitter, which I like, because it's very useful and it's very fun, but I've learned not to look too much at things people are saying. I mean, I to... If it's a notice board, I pin the notice up and run away. I don't wait to see people look at the notice and make comments about it because I compare it to a, a swimming pool. Even if all the water is, appears to be fresh, if there's one little turd in the corner somewhere, <laughs> I'm not going to dive into the pool. My uh, therapist, counsellor, used to say, with Christmas coming up, she used to say, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? And I think, can I be both? <laughs> but also, smile and wave. Yeah. That's it. I mean, I get a lot of emails of people going, you're terrible. And I, I just learned to delete them now. It's much easier. <laughs> it um, reminds me of that, that Alex Lowther comedy. I just saw like that where his father does that. Why doesn't the Queen use this hand to wave? Do you know? No. Because it's my hand. 
Anyway, sorry. But going back to serious sensitivity. Now, I'm really interested. You mentioned the sort of difference between psychiatrists and mm. psychologists. So what, in your opinion, mm. is the best route to good mental health? What do you think of the sort of components? I get asked a lot, mm. my daughter, my boyfriend, my, you know, whatever, is experiencing mental health issues and no one ever knows where to go or where no. to start. If one broke their arm, they'd know immediately yeah. what to do. But there is this sort of sense of being very lost out there. It's very true. I mean, I think self-diagnosis is as bad as self-medication. I mean, the, whatever your views about psychiatry and its most pill-pushing way and the SSRIs, you know, the, the sort of the Prozac generation of uh, pills and things and whether they're doing harm, more harm than good. These are all current stories, as you know, they're very hot in, in this sector. Well, whatever your f feelings about that, I think, because I am actually an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatry, I'm doing something tomorrow night for them, in fact, mm. which is to try and persuade medical students that psychiatry is a good specialism to choose. I, I do this sort of because it's very low down on the list. You know, they'd rather urology or, or you know, uh, obstetrics or whatever, if they're going to choose a speciality. Psychiatry is low on the list. And what's interesting is that when they then become 40 as doctors, they think, oh, I wish I'd chosen psychiatry. The life of the mind, the brain, these are the most exciting fields of science, generally. Consciousness, cognition, they're all very hot-button things. We're all, you know, we're all reading about confirmation bias and these wonderful books of popular science that have come out in the last few years and made us realize how little we know about our own minds and how exciting the work that's going on in, especially at a time when we seem to be on the brink of creating sapient machines when we haven't even yet figured out what our own sapience really is about but the best psychologists and psychotherapists i've met and the best psychiatrists i've met would both agree that the best approaches to mental health seem to be combined that's to say to have a, a pharmaceutical regime if it's necessary, together with a psychotherapeutic one, a, a talk a therapy, is better than a talk therapy alone or a, a pill therapy alone. In other words, because when we say brain and mind, what are we really saying when we talk about identity? We don't know where our identity comes from. Is it really just a question of firing synapses and neurons in this wet thing between our ears, this strange unknowable organ that we call the brain, is that also everything that is Stephen Fry is just in those cells? Mm. It's so wonderful to think there's somehow something else, something ethereal, some, some animus, some spirit, something numinous, some soul that is not just the sum of my chemical, neuron, endocrine brain. And yet it clearly isn't the case because you can change the personality. You can... People through trauma have changed their personality completely. The, the very personality that you think they are can be altered by a simple apoplectic stroke and they can become a brute, they can become utterly different. They're everything in their sexual behaviour, their taste in music, everything can change. And it is, you just, it's a stranger has woken up after the stroke or the car accident or whatever thing that's affected the brain. So we have to accept, it's not reductionist to say it, that we are this physical thing. How much mental illness is a product of an electrical or chemical or endocrine or genetic error, how much it can be that, or it can be a traumatic incident, it can be an abandonment when one was three that one can never quite remember that may come back through therapy, through hypnotherapy or other kinds of things. You may, may even come to confront the thing that made you afraid of this that then somehow triggered a whole cascade of mental problems. All these things are possible and they don't rule out the fact that it's also physical. The one thing I can say, I think with confidence, is that I'm pretty sure that the way we treat mental health is going to improve and improve and improve. Not enough for my lifetime, <laughs> but enough for the lifetime of my nieces and nephews and godchildren, I'm glad to think, mm. that there really will be better ways of sorting out the utter misery, devastation, desolation, unhappiness that is caused by mental health in so many homes and households around our country. That is going to be a big frontier for medicine and 
that's why I'm so keen to get the brightest young medical minds now specialising in, in the field of the brain because I think it is the most exciting frontier in science and in philosophy and in all thinking. This nature of who we are and where we come from in, in, in our bodies is thrilling now that we've thrown off the shackles of religion and so on, more or less. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Please. I would love to crawl inside your brain for a few hours. I could just listen to you talk forever about... You, you talk so beautifully and so articulately and so eloquently about what it's like to experience mental illness. And I know that when I first met you, which was a few months ago... We should say why, by the way. <laughs> no, I am a president of Mind, which is the largest uh, mental health charity in England and Wales, and for which this evening is held in benefit. And we have uh, media awards in which we reward people in the broadcast and online and traditional journalistic media who have uh, best presented mental health issues in ways which are helpful for the population and for the understanding of people and, and for the spreading of the word about what, you know, what the real mental health issues are. And Brownie Gordon won the award for, for best journalist in that field and quite rightly so for but I, amazing I, work. As, um, uh, but Harry hosted the award with me. And, uh, and uh, Stephen gave me the award and I remember thinking, this is batshit crazy. <laughs> you know, when I was 12 and I first got ill and you were this sort of person that and I was like, what is going on? Mm. And to think how far we've come, that you were the starting point. And for that, I'd like to thank you. Well, that's very good of you. And I'm, I'm just thrilled that you, with your conversation with Prince Harry, and, and let's be honest, what everyone feels about the royal family. And some people have very strong feelings for or against or don't mind in the middle. But there is no question that they have used, they have leveraged, as I believe, or leveraged, as I might say, their unique position in British society and, and culture to raise the level of the conversation in mental health in last year's Heads Together campaign and so on. It made an enormous difference when Prince Harry talked about his own feelings and confusions and uh, unhappinesses in, in his teenage recovering from his mother's death and the you know, public focus un, un, under which he was. That was a brave and remarkable thing and your interview with him was a masterpiece. And these things do make a difference. There are people listening and saying, well, if he can say that, then I can say what I feel. And that's happening everywhere. I would like to thank you. I've at times been sort of slightly on the verge of tears. This <laughs> is sort of like a dream moment for me. And I know that lots of people are going to want to ask questions. So we're going to open to the floor. There are people with roving microphones. And the floor, and thank you, Stephen. And, and also, can I just thank the Arts Club for hosting yes, yeah, us? Yeah. And it's the most beautiful venue, and I really wish I still drank. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Stephen. Not from dear friends and family members and you must have felt a lot of betrayal because there was a constant why uh, you know snap out of it or come on you've let us down and again and again and we're sick and tired of you and then you must have felt betrayal just like they also felt with you because they were frustrated. So how you're, you're, did you balance that level of frustration? It's a very good question because, of course, do I talked about self-medication is that uh, one of the problems, of the many problems that drugs and alcohol will cause is that it erects a fog so that uh, people only see the drugs and alcohol as being the problem. They don't understand what it is that may have caused you to be quite such a, an insane embracer of drugs and alcohol. They just see a weak person who's just become, you know, is a drunk and a cokehead. And, well, fuck off, and pull yourself together. Part of me almost doesn't want to hide under the, um, oh, I was ill and so on, that's what all the alcohol and the coke was, was illness. Part of me wants to say, yeah, it was weakness as well. I, I sort of enjoyed it and I felt, I won't say I felt it was cool exactly, but there were periods in the Groucho Club with them, you know very remarkable musicians and film stars when you were doing lines and you thought this is the life. I can now look back at it and see how pathetic it was, of course, but I can see how my friends would have just seen me going out every night, getting very blitzed, wired, being a party animal and, and sort of losing it and how they would get very annoyed with me. And it did take a particular moment in 95 when, when I was in this play and I just, I left the play, I got in the car and drove leaving a note, drove to the continent and ended up in uh, a 
I went through Belgium. Well, I went through Belgium, but I was spotted in Belgium. And everyone thought I'd gone to Belgium. But in fact, I ended up in Hanover and Hamburg and places like that. And I'd had this idea I was going to drive up to the top of Jutland in Denmark and sort of get one of those enormous white pullovers and grow a beard and smoke a pipe and write poetry or something. There's still time. There's still time. There is indeed. The point is one has to allow your friends and the people who still have faith in you to see through to the real you under the various things you're doing to, to, to mask the, the causes of your unhappiness, I suppose. Does that seem... Did you ever... Anger go away? The anger? Yes. From your friends, you mean? Uh, no. From one's own? Oh, yes. Because I can understand why it might... For others, but I have so much to, to be grateful for. I'm... A, an extraordinary family, wonderful parents, marvellous brother and sister who adore me unreservedly and have always had great faith in me and a tremendous sort of support staff of people in my agents and those sort of people have, have again been familial and warm and pastoral in their, the way they've treated me and been there for me and guided me and supported me and, and hidden me from the public eye when I've needed to be hidden from the public eye. So I have nothing to be angry about, to be honest. I really don't. Did you ever have someone say to you, in terms of when you're, you know, in your cups, why don't you just have one? Yeah, it's meaningless. Why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a shock. Most of us probably in this room are used to being thought of as rather nice people, and that our our friends and people think he's, a, you know, she, anyone he thought of as a, a terrible nice human. Yeah, we we, <laughs> we think we're nice people, and mostly we are. We think we're polite. We think we're kind. We think we're funny and friendly. The real shock comes when, when you're making a mess of your life. When someone says, you know, I don't like you at the moment. You think, but I'm, everyone likes me. I've always been liked. Aren't I likeable? And you realise that, not that you've turned into a nasty, snarling monster who hits people or is rude to people, but that somehow you're living selfishly in a way that you didn't used to. There's some difference. And only others can see it. We're very bad at seeing ourselves. And no matter how narcissistic we may seem to be in this world of selfies and self-image and so on, actually I don't think any human being is much good at understanding themselves and seeing themselves anything like as well as friends. And we all have got friends and we know those friends' weaknesses and we know they don't know them and that we try and explain them to them. But it's hard for us to realise that they have that for us too. And that you know, we need to believe our friends and the people who love us when they say that we are not being nice and we're not being good. Does someone else have a... Hello. Hello. Uh, hello. I have a, a daughter who's actually autistic and has ADHD and dyspraxia and dyslexia and all sorts of lovely comorbidities. Um, uh, and my question is, uh, you've spoken a lot about educating going to... Uh, I also went to a Nobby R school as well, by the way. And, <laughs> and it's a more of an issue at Nobby R schools, actually, than... Um, it is at uh, main sort of regular regular schools. How do we start, in your opinion, having lived through so much? Start. How do we start to educate teenagers who have a tsunami of social media every day who can't switch off? Obviously, I've used my daughter as that base because she is in this world mm. with many issues, whether she likes it or not. So, how do I start to educate her kin, her uh, her peers? and begin to even start to get a base that, that is a regular healthy mind or even a start? How do, how do we do that? You know, where do we go from here? It's, it's, it's an incredibly good question and a very difficult one to answer. Obviously, the terms of popularity and self-esteem, as the old phrase used to be, that children live in now are very different from the, the, from the ones when we were at sc school. The, you know, I've heard, and we all have, of, of children who have tried to kill themselves simply because they tweeted something or Instagrammed or Snapchatted something and they didn't get enough replies. And that absolutely made them feel that they were not loved, they were not popular. And popularity now has numbers that you can stare at on a screen. When we were at school, we felt sometimes we weren't very popular or we'd go in to get our food at lunchtime and it was somehow a struggle to find a place to sit down. Who are you going to sit next to? And, Am I unpopular today? I'm not popular. But this is black and white. You are this unpopular. This tweet you sent has only had nasty responses. It's not had, you know, it's a cruel vicious thing but one thing has never changed and that is that um, parents can sort of let themselves off in the hook in, in that they have absolutely no effect whatsoever on the upbringing of their children I'm possibly slightly exaggerating but not that much 
mostly it's understood that children are made and broken and educated by other children, by their peer group. And if you think about your own childhood, that's true. My parents, whom I love, and I may have been subconsciously aware they were there to support me, they never gave me emotional advice. They never gave me advice. Not because they were bad parents, but because even if they did, I just didn't listen to it. I would have thought, yeah, what the fuck do you know? <laughs> Excuse me. You know, you have to remember that your children think you are stupid very quickly. There's a period when they love you and they ask you questions about everything and the, the gap between, you know, where do babies come from, What's it, why is a cat different from a dog and why does a kettle boil to, no, mum, you don't know anything, is a very short gap. And from then on, the thing we look for in our children, obviously we want them to be educated in the academic sense and in the ways that are useful that, that schools can give them, but mostly we, we yearn now, and I think we understand better than perhaps any generation, we want an emotional intelligence, we want an emotional education for children, we want a, a sense of pastoral, we want them to be open in their feelings with each other, with, with their parents, with, whether it's a question of writing diaries or you know, whatever it is, we somehow want them to have the tools to feel able to express themselves. And these are things that are improving everywhere. I mean, if you look at just ordinary medicine, for example, medical students would perhaps have out of their thousands of hours of lectures and, and lessons in anatomy and pathology and histology and all the other ologies that they had to study, they would get like maybe half an hour from someone visiting professor of philosophy on ethics and another half hour on how to treat a patient. Whereas now it's understood that looking into the eyes of a patient, touching them, explaining everything truthfully that is going on in their body is not just polite, it has a clinical benefit. It reduces the cortisol, the adrenaline, and the other stress hormones that are produced, and those stress hormones are inimical to healing. So you're actually helping people be better by reaching out in an emotional way, in a way of friendship and a, a genuine emotional way that would be alien to a doctor 20 years ago, a British doctor in particular. And I think that's got to be true now of school teachers that they understand better than they have the pastoral role they have. It's quite difficult because, of course, they can't touch a child in any way at all <laughs> without losing their job. So on the one hand, they have to touch them emotionally or, or at least empower them to feel their feelings and be familiar with their feelings, but not in such a way that is hideous word, inappropriate. And that's where parents can come in, I think, is somehow creating the space in home and elsewhere where if that magic moment comes where particularly an adolescent child suddenly does want to, talk about feeling of any kind they're able to because most of the time they won't they'll do all the things that psychologically reveal how buttoned up they are they'll wear a black t-shirt and they'll steal a no entry sign from the street and put it on their door and they'll lock the door and they'll scream at you if you try and touch their computer and everything is private and closed down from their parents and you have to accept that there's no way you want to be their best friend their sister as well as their mother you but it's never going to happen We've got to be honest about that. But my knowledge of people, uh, one of my best friends is a son who's uh, on the autistic spectrum, and for all the difficulties and embarrassments and extraordinary experiences that she had, my friend, with, with her son, there was also a directness about the autistic person often, which is a blessed relief compared to the sort of complex, deceptive and confusing nature of ordinary people. There's a clarity in a strange way. So I'm sure you find a way of relating to them. But obviously I can't give an answer. You gave an amazing answer. Well, I gave an answer, but I'm not a definitive one, I fear. Yeah. I think you mentioned during your talk about your view on a link, your link between sort of mental health and negative mental health and high achievement. I wondered how that manifested in your life or what your personal view on it when looking at your career and your life is. Has it been a positive or a negative for you? Do you think it links you? That's a really good question. And actually, one of the things I asked when making the documentary all this, what, 12 years ago now, I asked everyone I spoke to who had bipolar disorder, some of them in incredibly serious ways. It had meant they'd been locked up, literally, for some years and, uh, and had big, like the guy I told you about who stood in front of the lorry. I gave them the ethicist's button. I said, here's a button on, on the table now. If you press it, your bipolar disorder will be taken away from you. All your depressive episodes, you, you will never have any more. But you'll also never have any elevated moods. You'll never have any of the energised 
hypermania that comes with an elevated upswing. Would you press the button? Only two out of the 40-odd people I interviewed pressed the button. That seems very extraordinary, having said what a serious thing it is now. We all have to take it seriously. It leads to suicide. W.H. Auden, who's one of the great heroes of me, he said, don't take away my devils, because my angels will fly away too. Now, we can't know that he's right, but we all, we've probably all seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and we know the idea of a lobotomy, of a zombification, of a levelling out, a plateauing of all mood, is something deeply unattractive to us. And that actually, if it really came to that button, we'd somehow believe that the pain in life, the misery, the upset, the unhappiness, is more than compensated for by the moments of joy, connection, love, real feeling. And it, it ought not to make sense, maybe to species from other worlds, they'll look at us and they'll hear me saying this and think that's insane. And perhaps it is, but I think it's deep within our, the way we're wired, the way we're made as humans, is that we, we tolerate all the bad things in life because the good things are so good. Love, family, children, all those things are so magnificent. Food. <laughs> that somehow just having a even keel of contentment appears to be a nightmare um, and there's no real isn't that true yeah would you press the button no, no i wouldn't i wouldn't i didn't really need to ask that question no. <laughs> but as to whether or not it privileges the person who's born with or develops or somehow has something like bipolar disorder with a special status that means they're bound for success. I'm afraid that that obviously isn't true. There have I mean, been. I mean specifically for you. For me, then yes, I, I do think it's, I can't separate the fact that I know that I have preternatural abilities sometimes to concentrate for hours and hours and hours and hours and to assimilate and to, to work and to, you know, without getting tired that uh, people around me have envied or found weird. And I do, I mean, I get up at 5.30 most mornings and I, I work solidly and write and read and make notes and do things and I'm involved. But when the bad moments come, of course, I, I, I can do nothing. But I do feel that I can't separate my condition from my work life and my achievements such as they are. Are there any other questions? must be... Oh, yes. Hello. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you, how does your husband deal with you when you go through your dark moments of your episodes? Well, it's a very good question, and I'm incredibly lucky because he is, I suppose the cliche is tough love, he is quite stern with me when he thinks I need to calm down and just settle and behave myself, <laughs> and is deeply sympathetic when I'm unhappy, and he knows when not to bother me and keep asking me how I am, because although it's lovely to know someone cares how you are, Sometimes you're in a sort of mood where you're just so prickly and so hypersensitive that just being asked is a kind of like makes your flesh crawl and you just don't ask. And so he understands. He's incredibly, he's just the perfect husband. <laughs> so I can say, I know. I'm where so is lucky. he right now? His brother and brother's wife are, a, she's literally being induced as we speak. So I'm about to have a, a nephew in law. Does the idea of children appeal to you? Enormously. I have 13 godchildren and I have nephews and, and nieces and I love them all. And they're all now, of course, in their 20s and 30s. So this new one is rather exciting to have a new baby again. If I have another baby, can I make you the godfather? <laughs> I'd love to be honoured, Brian. <laughs> Any questions? Um, I just want to know, like, what are some of the things that I could do to help someone that may be struggling with them? Oh, wonderful. It's a really good point. Um, I suppose one thing I often say is it's a natural question, but ideally don't bother to ask it unless you really think it's relevant. Don't ask them why they're feeling the way they are. It's a natural thing to say. Well, why are you unhappy? If you can explain why you're unhappy, it's not really depression. Depression is a tsunami of negative feeling that sweeps over you. I compare it to the weather. It's the only analogy I can find. It's incredibly important when it's raining to realise that the rain is real. It's not imaginary, but it's also incredibly important to recognise it's not your fault that it's raining. You haven't caused the rain. It is raining. Recognise that it's raining. Find an umbrella or stay indoors. 
but don't blame yourself and say, I've made it rain. And as far as others are concerned, understand that's what their mood is. It's something that has happened, like the weather, that is not their fault and doesn't have a cause that you can locate. So say you're feeling really bad now, and they'll say, yeah. say I can leave you alone, I can be with you, which will make you happier. The, the hardest thing to deal with is when people are manic, because they can do dangerous, irresponsible, crazy things, spend all kinds of money, be sexually exhibitionist or weird, or just go out on sprees of one kind or another. And there you might have to be strong. But it's a really difficult position to be in, and it's a wonderful thing that you should ask, because it's the kindest and best thing you can do, is to be a, a friend and a supporter of someone who is having a mental health crisis of some kind. Because very often they won't be reasonable or easy to handle. Everyone is different, and this is another point I make about pharmaceutical drugs. We all know that we can sit with a certain person at a dinner table and drink exactly the same amount of alcohol as they do, and they will turn it into a monster at some point, start being incredibly rude, throwing things, just changing their affect and their behaviour totally. And you, who've had precisely the same amount of drink, won't be like that. And alcohol is a pretty simple chemical, and yet it can affect different people in radical ways, as we all know. Some people... Two whiskies, monster, other people just fall asleep and giggle. It's the same with illness. Chemical things are going on, which for some people makes them very, very tricky, and other people, it's just you just want to hug them and sort of say, you just lie down, you know, you sit there, you'll be fine or whatever. And other people are just, you can't handle, and it, it's very difficult. So don't ever be, don't feel guilty that you can't help them. But I suppose the most obvious thing is safety. As long as you feel they're safe, they're not going to do anything dangerous. They're not going to they don't strike you as being suicidal. You know, those are the most important things. Is they're not going to harm themselves or others because of their mood. And like a storm, just try and find the best way to let it blow over with the least damage done, I suppose. It's not much of, not much of a technique, but that's the best I one can that's say. That's a wonderful way of describing it. Yeah. And letting people know that you're there, even if you just send yes, a text yes, every morning and yes. just go, I know you're finding me irritating, but I love you. Yes, exactly. I recently, well, about five years now, my brother had committed suicide. He, My parents adopted him when he was fairly young. And then the month before he turned 21, we had great plans for his birthday. But be two weeks before, he committed suicide. And leading up to this, he had a couple attempts, but we didn't really know how to talk with him about this. And the thing that he said that he struggled with the most is after he's in the middle of a depression or coming out of that, he didn't know how to get out of it. He didn't know how to ask for help. And that's something that me and my family have tried to help if we can identify, but we've really struggled with how to talk to the person. Yeah. But also when they're in this depression, this dark side, coming out of it that's almost when he said he needed the most help yeah absolutely right that is the time when you're inside it you don't really want to contact people you find you know almost allergic sometimes to the touch and the, the friendship and the reaching out of people but when you're f emerging you're, you're most vulnerable and the most in need but one of the paradoxes of, of us is that we believe in friendship and family and love and connection of, of people and after all what is a friend but someone you can say anything to and yet and I put it this way, if you imagine that we're not talking about a, a mental health problem, imagine we're talking about something physical that's embarrassing, let's say a genital wart. Now, if you have a genital wart, you're not going to show it to your mother. You're just not. I mean, maybe a girl would show it to their mother, but a man wouldn't. Or to their father. They go, what? I don't want to see that. God, for heaven's sake. You'd show it to a stranger. It's an odd thing. You have something really personal. You don't mind showing it to a stranger. You're not going to show it to your friend. You know, I'm going to go around to Hugh Laurie and say, look, I've got this thing on my todger. He's going, oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> you, know, you go to a specialist doctor. And oddly enough, although people say, no, I'm there for you, and they are, they mean it, sometimes it is easier to speak to a stranger. And that can often be the reason that psychotherapy works, is that you, it's someone who doesn't know you, hasn't known you. You know your friends won't judge you. You know it's intellectually, but you don't necessarily feel it. So sometimes there is a benefit in talking to someone you just don't know. You can really empty your soul and heart to a total stranger in a way 
it's much harder to do to a friend because you're going to see the friend again the next day and you might say something that you wish you hadn't said and you can never unsay it and the friend will always know it and you'll always see it in their eye even if they're not judging you you'll always think maybe that's in their look at your oh you know they've seen that wart whereas when it's a stranger you may not see them again except on the terms of having an intimate discussion so that's a thing to think about as well. But it, it's a monstrous thing for you to have, ha have to have dealt with that. Because suicide, for all, obviously it's monstrous in all kinds of ways, but it's those who are left behind will always naturally often feel some kind of guilt that there was some point at which they could have intervened and in which they could have said something and helped or seen the signs more clearly. But people who are determined to take their own lives are as cunning as alcoholics in, in hiding and in hoarding up with almost a kind of insane love. I know this, you know, like the pills that I hoarded. It's a kind of bargain you make with yourself, a kind of creepy and disreputable and horrifying bargain. And it's so absurd. You, 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 I think of myself then now and it's like, who the hell was I? How can I have felt these things? And yet I know I did. But again, another gift of life which is also its curse. You can't recall happiness. You can recall that you were happy. You can't make yourself happy again by remembering a happy time. You can try various, you know, neuralistic, linguistic techniques to try and bring back happiness, but also it's true of pain. That time you thumped your thumb with a hammer such that you screamed and screamed, that's gone. I will never feel that again. I can look at my thumb and I can talk about suicide and and I won't feel the pain. I can be upset at the embarrassment and the distress it caused others and that I could have been in such a position, but I won't feel it again. I won't re-feel that feeling. But I don't know, I, my heart goes out to you. It's, it's, it's a sad thing to live with, but I suppose you know the best you can do is to come along and you know, support Mind and, and others who are trying to address this extraordinary social problem. You know, we, we talk about the, all the problems that the world is facing and. The unhappiness of our children is such a pressing thing. It's something we all need to think about a lot, I, I can't but believe. Thank you for speaking out. Yeah. Um, we are strictly out of time, but I'm going to be naughty and say one more question. Side work, how do you tame your demons these days? I fear, and it makes me a very dull figure, that it's work that mostly does team them, tame Side them. Work. If I haven't worked... <laughs> Then they're restless. I do exercise a great deal, but it's only walking. I can't do gyms or anything of that nature. But I walk every morning fiercely and listen to audiobooks of all kinds. It's a wonderful thing that, you know, because music I just listened you can't... To those recently. Oh, did you? <laughs> That's very good of you. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, but if you, when you're walking and listening to music, you stop every 10 yards and go, no, no, not that track, I don't want that one. No, no, not that one. You know. Whereas when it's a story, someone's telling you a story, or, or it needn't be a novel, and it needn't be a great novel. It doesn't have to be the Brothers Karamazov, though it might be. You can write down the list of great novels that you've never read and secretly feel you should. Oh, my God, I've never read this Flaubert novel or this George Eliot novel. Or it could be, I just want an Agatha Christie, or I want the latest... Lee Child, Jack Reacher adventure. Or Do something. you ever listen to yourself reading <laughs> the Harry Potter books? No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> I would find that very odd now because it was some time ago. I could, it was 20 years ago or something, the first one. Oh, that that makes me feel very old. But no, I, I remember very well my agent saying, Do you, Oh, you've got a couple of weeks off. And there's a children's book that you might want to do a, an audiobook of. That's, it's a new book and it's, apparently it's very good. And she sent around this book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is rather good. So I met this the woman who had written it, Joe Rowling, and we were in Soho. I said, this was really good. I really enjoyed that. She said, well, actually, I've, I've written a second one. I said, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> in what I'm sure must have been the most patronising way. And, <laughs> and uh, every now and again, she wrote a new one. And then suddenly it was fascinating to watch that uh, happen, though, that become the phenomenon it was. Really, really remarkable. And talking books have become like podcasts, your, the podcasts you do. You, you just walk your legs off and constantly wanting, you think, oh, I'll, I'll walk around that square again or I'll walk up and down the street again or around the park again because uh, there's another chapter coming or there's a, I can see on the podcast there's still another 20 minutes to go. And, and somehow I just find that you really exercise far more by doing that. And doctors tell you that's the best thing for you. So I think that's one of the things I do. But otherwise, just being in a, in a happy marriage and cooking, 
I enjoy cooking. I mean, I'm really bad at it, but I love it. And uh, Elliot is very good at, uh, at being the guinea pig for my new things. I've recently tried to do different types of curry, but I've become vegetarian, so he has to put up with these sort of weird, peculiar, uh, proteinous, tofu-y things that... Uh, <laughs> anyway... You don't need to know all that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Much like you walking around and wanting to listen to more and more of an audiobook, I could listen to you for hours. <laughs> I'm sure everyone agrees. No. You ask you any question and you just... I am speechless and lost for words and like an inarticulate loon <laughs> unable to say anything but thank you so much for coming and doing this thank you everyone for coming and listening and thank you to the Arts Club for having us indeed thank you all been wonderful if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today a comprehensive list of mental health services is available on our website which is www telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld. If you want help right now, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 that's 03001233393. And they are accessible 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. Finally, there's Young Minds, who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. And remember this you are not alone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 